Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Game retailer GameStop has been having quite the week on Wall Street. Thousands of small investors were buying up stock and driving up the market value of the company. These investors were gathering in places like the Wall Street Bets subreddit and targeting short sellers by buying up what they're calling meme stocks. While GameStop was the current beneficiary of this plan, other companies like BlackBerry and AMC have also been brought up, sending shares soaring. The ups and downs continued, even as some trading sites and apps had restricted transactions of GameStop and AMC. Robinhood, which is a popular investor app, prevented customers from purchasing more shares of a lot of companies, but because of the backlash, they're allowing limited buys now. For more on the crazy week that GameStop has been having on Wall Street, we'll speak to James Surowiecki, columnist for the online business magazine Marker. Just to, to provide some context for that, GameStop's 52-week low was $2.57. So you can do the math there. Perhaps even more amazingly, GameStop ended 2020. I think the stock was at 18.84. So that means it's up, I think, around 1,900% this month. And, and most amazing. of that gain has come in the last, in the last week. It really kind of exploded beginning last Friday. So as you said, the core of the community that has kind of driven this stock upward is centered on a subreddit called Wall Street Bets, which is actually a huge subreddit. So it now, I think, has more than 2 million subscribers. Obviously, <laughs> it's gotten a lot more subscribers since this has started. But even before that, it was, it was very big. And it's a very sort of Reddit-like community. It's a bunch of people talking to each other, telling jokes, making fun. And one of the kinds of stocks that they've been very interested in over the last, I don't know, let's say six months to a year, they've tended to focus on cheap stocks. So stocks that oftentimes are priced in the single digits, but that, that have relatively small overall market capitalizations. And then oftentimes stocks that are beaten down stocks that you could theoretically make a lot of money in if they sort of rebound. I mean, they're obviously been interested in Tesla and the, some of the more right. hypey stocks. But they're, they're, uh, buying, but they're really, buying guys like BlackBerry and AMC movie theaters, which they've been suffering throughout the pandemic. So these are just some of the other ones that they've been getting in on as well. Exactly. Exactly. And so the idea of meme, of meme stocks is pretty new. It, I think the term really only emerged less than a couple of years ago. And it first started to take off last summer when we saw some really crazy movements in Hertz, which even though it, it was bankrupt, suddenly saw its stock skyrocket last summer. And then Kodak was another example. I don't know if you remember, but there was this sort of weird moment when I honestly can't even remember the details of the story, but there was this news that Kodak was somehow going to be involved in making COVID drugs. And oh, really? so Kodak <laughs> stock went sort of spiked as well. And the mean stock thing really started to take off in sort of the end of 2020. And now, obviously, this month is really when it's sort of come into its own. And as you said, GameStop is by far the most prominent of them because of just how crazy the action in that stock has been. But there are now a host of other ones. So as you said, AMC Theaters, which today was up 300%, BlackBerry, which 
was up like 30% today, which by by these standards is a tiny gain. But if you think about 30%, that's pretty huge. Nokia, so a lot of these beaten down things. So the key to this story, I think, is that what's happening in these stocks, and let's talk about GameStop. The key is that what's happening is it's not like a kind of traditional stock market bubble where people are just kind of rushing in to buy stocks because they see other people are buying them and they think, oh, those stocks are going to go up or they think I'll be able to dump this stock on a, a greater fool or they just become sort of hypnotized by the promise of the internet like happened in the late 1990s or there have been many little bubbles in Wall Street history. My favorite one is in the early 1960s, investors became convinced that every American was going to end up going bowling like three or four times a week. And so there was this huge bubble in bowling stocks. This is very different from that. What happened on this Reddit, on this subreddit, was that people recognized that GameStop was not just very cheap and had a relatively small float. In other words, there aren't that many shares outstanding. But they also realized that a huge percentage of that float, so by some accounts, all of the shares plus some, were being sold short by short sellers. So short sellers were basically betting that GameStop stock was going to continue to fall. And the reason that's important is that when a stock starts rising sharply, if it's been heavily shorted, what oftentimes will happen is that short sellers will have to buy the stock back in order to, the phrase on Wall Street is cover their shorts because they don't necessarily want to keep their short as that stock keeps rising because if they do, every dollar it rises is another dollar they've lost. And so if short sellers can't take the pain, they buy the stock. Well, when short sellers buy stock, that obviously helps push the price higher. So if there are more people shorting higher above them who maybe don't, you know, that sends the price higher. That means there are more short sellers who are getting pain inflicted. They may say, okay, I can't take the pain. They buy the stock, et cetera. Yeah. For GameStop as a company, they're selling physical games. I thought they were maybe getting a boost because they were a player in selling the new Xbox and PlayStation consoles. But, you know, really those types of things are trending more digital, buying on the digital marketplaces. So what kind of future does GameStop really have in that sense? So when they all got together, as you mentioned, the short sellers are having to buy things back. So the price is going up. What happens when they start selling that off now to make their profit? You know, what happens when it doesn't keep rising? Let me say one thing first, which is interesting. There was a kind of catalyst in the summer that kind of got people buying GameStop independent of trying to drive the price up or whatever, which was that a guy named Ryan Cohen, who had been at this company called Chewy, this pet company that he you know, helped make a such shockingly valuable company, like a $3 billion company, given the market they were in. He joined GameStop's board, and along the lines of what you're talking about, he actually has supposedly has this plan to try to turn GameStop into this e-commerce company and blah, blah, blah. So that was one of the things that first got people interested in maybe taking a dip in the stock. But what really happened was as that price started to rise, and then some short sellers said, oh, oh, it's even a greater, better opportunity to short. Then people started to say, wait a second, we can actually game this thing. So they pushed the price higher. One other thing they did, which I won't go into the details of because it's a little complicated, but they've also used options trading to help boost the price stock. 
basically what they're doing is they're creating these kind of positive feedback loops. So that is to say they're doing things that drive the price higher, which in turn makes the price go higher. So that's been the strategy they're using. It's actually quite clever. But the problem, as you said, is what happens when, <laughs> when the number of buyers drops off and people want to cash out to realize their profit. And I think the honest answer is we don't know. The problem for anyone who's buying at these prices is that there's no way GameStop's actual business can justify its current valuation. At 340, GameStop is worth something like 22 billion, I think. I can't wow. believe it. I'm not sure it's quite that, but it's over 20 billion dollars. You know, it's a real company. I mean, it has 5,000 stores still. It has like 6 billion in sales, but it has it'll be lucky to make 100 million dollars this year. So, you can't get to a 20 billion dollar valuation if you're in as you said, a legacy business selling physical discs in a world that's migrating to digital. So, the point is once the stock price starts to fall, there isn't really an obvious cushion to keep it from falling a huge amount. I mean, it really is like, I think it's going to have to be look out below because the only thing that's kept it up this high is the sort of collective will of these people on the subreddit. And then the fact that the shorts are covering and the options guys are having to buy stock to hedge their options. So that's the crazy part. But the weird thing is, I can't tell you what will be the catalyst for them to look down and say, oh, wait a second, there's nothing below our feet. I don't know what's going to make them do that. <laughs> it's a very strange situation. James Surowiecki, writer of the Money Talks column for Marker. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And finally for this week, we unfortunately have very little control over what we see in our social media feeds. It's mostly left to the algorithms that dictate how and what is featured first. Gone are the days of posts in chronological order. Now, we see mostly content that the system thinks we want to see. And that can push us further into our own bubbles, which can lead to voices of misinformation being amplified. For more on this, and some ideas on how we can take charge of our own social media again, we'll speak to Joanna Stern, senior personal tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal. In around 2009, Facebook moved to an algorithmic feed. That means that they took away or they didn't make the default any longer, the ability to see all of our posts in chronological order. So if a friend posted and then another friend posted and another friend posted, we used to see those all in order. They moved to a, a system where they would show us the things that they thought we would be most interested in. And then in 2016, we sort of lost any remaining control we had on these platforms because the other social media platforms, Twitter and Instagram, moved to this algorithmic feed. And so that really meant was that all of our social media feeds were now really being controlled by what I think of as little robots in the background, picking out the things that we would be most interested in seeing, the things that we would most likely tap or share or heart emoji or cry emoji. Those are the things that were put right smack in front of our faces. And really what it did is it kind of put us more in our bubbles. You know, if it was cooking videos that you want to see or even some of this more extreme stuff, these QAnon videos going down those rabbit holes, it really just amplified all of that stuff. That's what the system thought you wanted to see, and it was just going to push more of that to you. All of the systems are optimized for engagement, right? They want you to be engaging with what you see, and they want you to keep engaging with that, and they really monitor. They want you to spend more time, right? And we want to spend more time. We are – I really don't want to – 
lose sight of the fact that we have our own control here of whether we use social media or not. We have control over our hands. We have control over our eyeballs. We can make those decisions. But these tools, we're really in this constant fight with these robots and these computers that are saying, hey, more, look, look at this. Look at this. You're going to like this. You're going to want to share this. You're going to want to comment on this versus yeah, maybe there's a feed here of stuff that like you might be interested in. You might not be interested in. Maybe every fifth post you're going to be interested in. We don't have that anymore. And so, yes, as we looked at this, as you look at the bigger system, what really got amplified were the things you'd want to see and the things that people would want to share. And it turns out that people like to see or like to share incendiary things. And especially in certain pockets, people like to share conspiracy theories and information that's not true or they believed it was true because it was being shared so much to them. So what do we do to get out of this? You kind of concede very early in, the, in your article that yeah. there's not really much we can do. You were just kind of sharing some ideas of maybe things we could go back to, adjust, things like that. So let's run through some of those. There's a new site out there called MeWe, which kind of goes back to that chronological order. There's no algorithms, no ads, and there's positives, but there's also some negatives to that one. I think this one's interesting just because it's marketing itself as the anti-Facebook. Basically, everything that Facebook used to be when we first got it, well, that's what they want it to be now, right? They're thinking, hey, the early days of social media, you see a friend, you see a post, you follow it, and that's all you see. No ads, no cramming of your news feed from things that you think you'll be interested in. We give you the pure feed. And I spoke to the CEO and the founder of the company, and he's really saying we want to eliminate all of these other issues. The issue that they have is that actually lots of far-right users now, after fleeing Facebook and Twitter and Parler, are now landing at MeWe, and they're trying to create groups that, uh, you know, trying to, again, bring over some of this misinformation. So they say that they are definitely heavily moderating. What I like the most about the idea is that it flips the business model on its head. I mean, if you really look at the reasons we have these algorithms and these feeds that are so jam-packed with things we want to see is... They want us to click on advertisements, right? right? These companies make money from the advertisements. That's the business model. So MeWe doesn't use advertising. He says that they are going to only charge premium services or they're going to offer premium services. So you'd pay to use it. You could pay to unlock some emojis or pay to unlock some other features like live journals and other things like that. But he says no advertising. There will not be advertising. Yeah. But that's a tough one, too, because why do people gravitate to some of these other ones? Because they're free. And you kind of give and take, right? That's uh, right. A lot of people don't necessarily read the terms of service, and I think that's where problems arise after. But you agree to all that. You agree to the ads. You agree to all that for using the service for free. And there's real benefit to these services being free. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg and many others that work at Facebook and Twitter have said that this is the way that we get a free and open Internet, right? At least. We can't be just charging and we can't just be, you know, to those that can actually afford a Twitter or a Facebook. We can't just have that, right? That creates a whole other set of problems. So I certainly believe, I certainly don't think that just a paid social media program or app is going to be the solution here. And in the wake of Parler's removal, MeWe has been in touch with all the big tech companies to make sure that their moderation plans are up to snuff so that they don't get kicked off, obviously. But they say it right away that if you do any type of incendiary stuff, inciting violence or whatever, you're going to get kicked off right away. Yes, they were very clear about that when I interviewed them. Another idea that you posed in here is to deprioritize a lot of dist more destructive and outrageous postings and those kinds of thoughts so that hopefully, you know, that doesn't start spreading around. 
this has been sort of the heart of the debate between the social media companies and Washington right now. It's like, who should be the arbiter of truth? Who should be deciding what we see and we don't see? But there's a lot of good evidence that when they do look at the algorithms, especially things that are being spread and shared that are either misinformation or conspiracy or in looking to incite violence and some of the more extremist groups, that there are things that they can do. Facebook did this ahead of the election. They're currently doing it now. There are things that they can do with their algorithms to deprioritize that, to not be feeding that in terms of recommended groups or recommended content in people's feeds. And we saw the results of that from Facebook, at least near the election, was that that meant a boost to trusted news sources, less partisan news sources. YouTube has also had some examples of this working. In March 2020, a study out of Berkeley, they found that when YouTube did increase the promotion of conspiracy videos that after they had changed their recommendation algorithms that people were not seeing as many of these conspiracy videos. We want these trusted news sources to be boosted, but then we get into this whole thing that we went through where a lot of these big tech companies were being criticized, saying they were silencing conservative voices Mm -hmm. and alternative media. Again, you kind of get into this whole thing, you know, who's to say you should deplatform or not boost some of these other sites. So that's kind of another conversation that pops up after that. There's no easy solution here. And I do not, I do not (laughs) promise to have any of them. I'm just suggesting some things that have been suggested. These are just the conversations that roll out of this. And another idea that you had was kind of giving people back their control. Let's say, give me the option to go back to a chronological order on my posts and things like that. And you can do that, but it's kind of difficult. Uh, Some places, maybe like Instagram, won't let you at all. But, you know, Facebook, Twitter kind of have some modified things like that. Yeah, I think there's two things in this area of control. One is giving us more control or tools to understand what these algorithms are feeding us. And that's really all about transparency. Why is something in our feed? Why isn't something in our feed? And actually, Facebook has done a lot in this area. You can click on something in your feed, again, buried. But if you click on these the little three dots, usually in your Facebook feed, you can click to something that says, why am I seeing this post? And it will give you a little bit of information of well, we think, you know, you engaged with this person or you joined this group or you read this article and it gives you a little bit of transparency about why you're seeing something. So I think we need more in that realm. The second thing that I think we need more of is more control over what we do see, not why we're seeing it, but what do we see? And I think one of the things that we did lose when we went from that chronological order to an algorithmic order is that we no longer see everything. So that means that if I was following a left-leaning or a right-leaning website, but I didn't engage with it that much, well, then it's not showing in my feed. So I don't even get to see that anymore. So it's important to be able to see some version of the chronological feed. Twitter lets you do that really easily. Facebook lets you do that not so easily. Instagram doesn't let you do that at all. Well, I mean, these are the conversations that are going to be had for some time. You know, we hope that we get more control on that. But while these algorithms Part of the business models, really, of a lot of these companies, we're not going to see them go away soon. And, you know, there are some that like it. You know, they want to be pushed that content that they're comfortable with. So definitely something to keep monitoring. Joanna Stern, senior personal tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. 